Section 16 of The Princess and Curdie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Princess and Curdie by George MacDonald. Chapters 26 to 27. Chapter 26. The Vengeance. By the time the girl reached the servants' hall, they were seated at supper. A loud, confused exclamation arose when she entered. No one made room for her. All stared with unfriendly eyes. A page, who entered the next minute by another door, came to her side. "'Where do you come from, hussy?' shouted the butler, and knocked his fist on the table with a loud clang. He had gone to fetch wine, had found the stair door broken open and the cellar door locked and had turned and fled. Among his fellows, however, he had now regained what courage could be called his. "'From the cellar,' she replied. "'The messenger broke open the door and sent me to you again.' "'The messenger? Pooh! What messenger?' "'The same one who sent me before to tell you to repent.' "'What? Will you go fooling it still? Haven't you had enough of it?' cried the butler in a rage and, starting to his feet, drew near threateningly. "'I must do as I am told,' said the girl. "'Then why don't you do as I tell you and hold your tongue?' said the butler. "'Who wants your preachments? If anybody here has anything to repent of, isn't that enough? And more than enough for him. But you must come bothering about and stirring up, till not a drop of quiet will settle inside him. You come along with me, young woman.' "'We'll see if we can't find a lock somewhere in the house that'll hold you in.' "'Hands off, Mr. Butler,' said the page, and stepped between. "'Oh, ho!' cried the butler, and pointed his fat finger at him. "'That's you, is it, my fine fellow? "'So it's you that's up to her tricks, is it?' The youth did not answer, only stood with flashing eyes fixed on him, until, growing angrier and angrier, but not daring a step near, he burst out with a rude but quivering authority. "'Leave the house, both of you. Be off, or I'll have Mr. Stewart talk to you. Threaten your masters, indeed. Out of the house with you, and show us the way you tell us of.' Two or three of the footmen got up, and ranged themselves behind the butler. "'Don't say I threaten you, Mr. Butler,' expostulated the girl from behind the page. "'The messenger said I was to tell you again.' "'and give you one chance more.' "'Did the messenger mention me in particular?' "'asked the butler, looking the page unsteadily in the face. "'No, sir,' answered the girl. "'I thought not. I should like to hear him.' "'Then hear him now,' said Curdie, "'who that moment entered at the opposite corner of the hall. I speak of the butler in particular, when I say that I know more evil of him than of any of the rest. He will not let either his own conscience or my messenger speak to him. I therefore now speak myself. I proclaim him a villain, and a traitor to his majesty the king. But what better is any one of you, who cares only for himself, eats, drinks, takes good money, and gives vile service in return, stealing and wasting the king's property? and making of the palace, which ought to be an example of order and sobriety, a disgrace to the country. 
For a moment all stood astonished into silence by this bold speech from a stranger. True, they saw by his mattock over his shoulder that he was nothing but a minor boy. Yet for a moment the truth told notwithstanding. Then a great roaring laugh burst from the biggest of the footmen, as he came shouldering his way through the crowd toward Curdie. "'Yes, I'm right,' he cried. "'I thought as much. "'This messenger, forsooth, is nothing but a gallows-bird, "'a fellow the city marshal was going to hang, "'but unfortunately put it off till he should be starved enough "'to save rope and be throttled with a pack-thread. "'He broke prison, and here he is preaching.' "'As he spoke, he stretched out his great hand to lay hold of him. "'Curdie caught it in his left hand, "'and heaved his mattock with the other.' Finding, however, nothing worse than an ox-hoof, he restrained himself, stepped back a pace or two, shifted his mattock to his left hand, and struck him a little smart blow on the shoulder. His arm dropped by his side, he gave a roar and drew back. His fellows came crowding upon Curdie. Some called to the dogs, others swore. The women screamed. The footmen and pages got round him in a half-circle which he kept from closing by swinging his mattock, and here and there threatening a blow. "'Whoever confesses to having done anything wrong in this house, however small, however great, and means to do better, let him come to this corner of the room,' he cried. None moved but the page, who went toward him skirting the wall. When they caught sight of him the crowd broke into a hiss of derision. "'There, see, look at the sinner,' He confesses, actually confesses. Come, what is it you stole? The bare-faced hypocrite. There's your sort to set up for reproving other people. Where's the other now? But the maid had left the room, and they let the page pass, for he looked dangerous to stop. Curdie had just put him betwixt him and the wall, behind the door, when in rushed the butler with the huge kitchen poker the point of which he had blown red-hot in the fire, followed by the cook with his longest spit. Through the crowd, which scattered right and left before them, they came down upon Curdie. Uttering a shrill whistle, he caught the poker a blow with his mattock, knocking the point to the ground, while the page behind him started forward, and, seizing the point of the spit, held on to it with both hands the cook kicking him furiously. Ere the butler could raise the poker again, or the cook recover the spit, with a roar to terrify the dead, Lena dashed into the room, her eyes flaming like candles. She went straight at the butler. He was down in a moment, and she on top of him, wagging her tail over him like a lioness. "'Don't kill him, Lena,' cried Curdie. "'Oh, Mr. Minor!' cried the butler. "'Put your foot on his mouth, Lena,' said Curdie. "'The truth, fear tells, is not much better than her lies.' The rest of the creatures now came stalking, rolling, leaping, gliding, hobbling into the room, and each, as he came, took the next place along the wall, until, solemn and grotesque, all stood ranged, awaiting orders. And now some of the culprits were stealing to the doors nearest them, Curdie whispered to the two creatures next to him. Off went Ballbody, rolling and bounding through the crowd like a spent cannon-shot, 
and when the foremost reached the door to the corridor, there he lay at the foot of it, grinning. To the other door scuttled a scorpion, as big as a huge crab. The rest stood so still that some began to think they were only boys dressed up to look awful. They persuaded themselves they were only another part of the housemaid's and page's vengeful contrivance, and their evil spirits began to rise again. Meantime Curdie had, with a second sharp blow from the hammer of his mattock, disabled the cook, so that he yielded the spit with a groan. He now turned to the avengers. "'Go at them,' he said. The whole nine-and-forty obeyed at once, each for himself, and after his own fashion. A scene of confusion and terror followed. The crowd scattered like a dance of flies. The creatures had been instructed not to hurt much, but to hunt incessantly, until everyone had rushed from the house. The women shrieked and ran hither and thither through the hall, pursued each by her own horror, and snapped at by every other in passing. If one threw herself down in hysterical despair, she was instantly poked or clawed or nibbled up again. Though they were quite as frightened at first, the men did not run so fast, and by and by some of them, finding they were only glared at and followed and pushed, began to summon up courage once more, and with courage came impudence, the tapir had the big footman in charge. The fellow stood stock-still, and let the beast come up to him, then put out his finger and playfully patted his nose. The tapir gave the nose a little twist, and the finger lay on the floor. Then indeed did the footman run. Gradually the avengers grew more severe, and the terrors of the imagination were fast yielding to those of sensuous experience. When a page, perceiving one of the doors no longer guarded, sprang at it and ran out, another and another followed. Not a beast went after, until, one by one, they were everyone gone from the hall, and the whole crew in the kitchen. They were beginning to congratulate themselves that all was over, when in came the creatures trooping after them, and the second act of their terror and pain began. They were flung about in all directions. Their clothes were torn from them. They were pinched and scratched any and everywhere. Ballbody kept rolling up them and over them, confining his attentions to no one in particular. The scorpion kept grabbing at their legs with his huge pincers. A three-foot centipede kept screwing up their bodies, nipping as he went. Varied as numerous were their woes. Nor was it long before the last of them had fled from the kitchen to the sculleries. But thither also they were followed, and there again they were hunted about. They were bespattered with the dirt of their own neglect. They were soused in the stinking water that had boiled greens. They were smeared with rancid dripping. Their faces were rubbed in maggots. I dare not tell you all that was done to them. At last they got the door into the backyard open and rushed out. Then first they knew that the wind was howling and the rain falling in sheets. But there was no rest for them even there. Thither also they were followed by the inexorable avengers. And the only door here was a door out of the palace. Out every soul of them was driven, and left, some standing, some lying, some crawling, 
to the farther buffeting of the water-spouts and whirlwinds raging every street of the city. The door was flung to behind them, and they heard it locked and bolted and barred against them. CHAPTER Twenty Seven, MORE VENGEANCE As soon as they were gone, Curdie brought the creatures back to the servants' hall, and told them to eat up everything on the table. It was a sight to see them all standing round it, except such as had to get upon it, eating and drinking each after its fashion. Without a smile or a word or a glance of fellowship in the act, a very few moments served to make everything eatable vanish, and then Curdie requested them to clean house, and the page who stood by to assist them. Everyone set about it except Bullbody. He could do nothing at cleaning, for the more he rolled, the more he spread the dirt. Curdie was curious to know what he had been, and how he had come to be such as he was. But he could only conjecture that he was a gluttonous alderman, whom nature had treated homeopathically. And now there was such a cleaning and clearing out of neglected places, such a burying and burning of refuse, such a rinsing of jugs, such a swilling of sinks, and such a flushing of drains, as would have delighted the eyes of all true housekeepers and lovers of cleanliness generally. Curdie, meantime, was with the king, telling him all he had done. They had heard a little noise, but not much, for he had told the avengers to repress outcry as much as possible, and they had seen to it that the more anyone cried out, the more he had to cry out upon, while the patient ones they scarcely hurt at all. Having promised His Majesty and Her Royal Highness a good breakfast, Curdie now went to finish the business. The courtiers must be dealt with. A few who were the worst, and the leaders of the rest, must be made examples of. The others should be driven to the street. He found the chiefs of the conspiracy holding a final consultation in the smaller room of the hall. These were the Lord Chamberlain, the Attorney General, the Master of the Horse, and the King's private secretary, the Lord Chancellor and the rest, as foolish and faithless, were but the tools of these. The housemaid had shown him a little closet opening from a passage behind, where he could overhear all that passed in that room, and now Curdie heard enough to understand that they had determined, in the dead of that night, rather in the deepest dark before the morning, to bring a certain company of soldiers into the palace, make away with the king, secure the princess, announce the sudden death of his majesty, read as his the will they had drawn up, and proceed to govern the country at their ease, and with results. They would at once levy severe taxes, and pick a quarrel with the most powerful of their neighbours. Everything settled, they agreed to retire, and have a few hours quiet sleep first. All but the secretary, who was to sit up and call them at the proper moment. Curdie allowed them half an hour to get to bed, and then set about completing his purgation of the palace. First he called Lena, and opened the door of the room where the secretary sat. She crept in, and laid herself down against it. When the secretary, rising to stretch his legs, caught sight of her, he stood, frozen with terror. She made neither motion nor sound. Gathering courage and taking the thing for a spectral illusion, he made a step forward. She showed her other teeth, 
with a growl neither more than audible nor less than horrible. The secretary sank fainting into his chair. He was not a brave man, and besides, his conscience had gone over to the enemy, and was sitting against the door by Lena. To the Lord Chamberlain's door next, Curdie conducted the leg-serpent and let him in. Now his lordship had had a bedstead made for himself, sweetly fashioned of rods of silver gilt. Upon it the leg-serpent found him asleep, and under it he crept. But out he came on the other side, and crept over it next, and again under it, and so over it, under it, over it, five or six times, every time leaving a coil of himself behind him, until he had softly folded all his length about the Lord Chamberlain and his bed. This done, he set up his head, looking down with the curved neck right over his lordship's, and began to hiss in his face. He woke in terror unspeakable, and would have started up, but the moment he moved, the leg-serpent drew his coils closer and closer still, and drew and drew until the quaking traitor heard the joints of his bedstead grinding and gnarring. Presently he persuaded himself that it was only a horrid nightmare, and began to struggle with all his strength to throw it off. Thereupon the leg-serpent gave his hooked nose such a bite that his teeth met through it, but it was hardly thicker than the bowl of a spoon, and then the vulture knew that he was in the grasp of his enemy the snake, and yielded. As soon as he was quiet, the leg-serpent began to untwist and retwist, to uncoil and recoil himself, swinging and swaying, knotting and relaxing himself with strangest curves and convolutions. Always, however, leaving at least one coil around his victim. At last he undid himself entirely, and crept from the bed. Then first the Lord Chamberlain discovered that his tormentor had bent and twisted the bedstead, legs and canopy and all, so about him that he was shut in a silver cage, out of which it was impossible for him to find a way. Once more, thinking his enemy was gone, he began to shout for help. But the instant he opened his mouth, his keeper darted at him and bit him, and after three or four such essays, he lay still. The master of the horse Curdie gave in charge of the tapir. When the soldier saw him enter, for he was not yet asleep, he sprang from his bed and flew at him with his sword. But the creature's hide was invulnerable to his blows, and he pecked at his legs with his proboscis, until he jumped into bed again, groaning and covered himself up. After which the tapir contented himself with, now and then, paying a visit to his toes. As for the Attorney-General, Curdie led to his door a huge spider, about two feet long in the body, which, having made an excellent supper, was full of webbing. The Attorney-General had not gone to bed, but sat in a chair asleep before a great mirror. He had been trying the effect of a diamond star, which he had that morning taken from the jewel-room. When he woke he fancied himself paralysed. Every limb, every finger even, was motionless. Coils and coils of broad spider-ribbon bandaged his members to his body, and all to the chair. In the glass he saw himself wound about with slavery infinite. On a footstool a yard off sat the spider glaring at him. Clubhead had mounted guard over the butler, 
where he lay tied hand and foot under the third cask. From that cask he had seen the wine run into a great bath, and therein he expected to be drowned. The doctor, with his crushed leg, needed no one to guard him. And now Curdie proceeded to the expulsion of the rest. Great men or underlings he treated them alike. From room to room over the house he went, and sleeping or waking took the man by the hand. Such was the state to which a year of wicked rule had reduced the moral condition of the court, that in it all he found but three with human hands. The possessors of these he allowed to dress themselves and depart in peace. When they perceived his mission and how he was backed, they yielded. Then commenced a general hunt, to clear the house of the vermin. Out of their beds in their night clothing, out of their rooms, gorgeous chambers or garret nooks, the creatures hunted them. Not one was allowed to escape. Tumult and noise there was little, for fear was too deadly for outcry. Ferreting them out everywhere, following them upstairs and downstairs, yielding no instant of repose except upon the way out, the avengers persecuted the miscreants, until the last of them was shivering outside the palace gates, with hardly sense enough left to know where to turn. When they set out to look for shelter, they found every inn full of the servants expelled before them, and not one would yield his place to a superior suddenly levelled with himself. Most houses refused to admit them on the grounds of the wickedness that must have drawn on them such a punishment, and not a few would have been left in the streets all night, had not Durba, roused by the vain entreaties at the doors on each side of a cottage, opened hers, and given up everything to them. The Lord Chancellor was only too glad to share a mattress with a stable-boy, and steal his bare feet under his jacket. In the morning Curdie appeared, and the outcasts were in terror, thinking he had come after them again. But he took no notice of them. His object was to request Derba to go to the palace. The king required her services. She need take no trouble about her cottage, he said. The palace was henceforward her home. She was the king's chatelaine, over men and maidens of his household and this very morning she must cook his majesty a nice breakfast. End of section 16